This podcast forum is brought to you to share expertise and insights within our integrated delivery system to help us improve the health of the people we serve and achieve world-class accessible care. This is Expert Insights. Here's your host, Melanie Cole. Heart disease is the number one killer of men and women and is more deadly than all forms of cancer combined. Today, we're talking about heart health and heart disease prevention with Dr. Karen Wiarda. She's a cardiologist with the Carl Foundation Hospital. Dr. Wiarda, tell us a little bit about the current state of heart disease today, the incidence and burden, and what's different about what we know about it now as compared to what we knew 20 years ago. Uh, as mentioned, the burden is, is very high. There's an estimated 17.9 million people who die from cardiovascular disease, which accounts for 31% global deaths, and 85% of those deaths are from heart attacks and strokes. Over three-quarters of those deaths are from low- and middle-income countries, and we know that if we can prevent heart disease by reducing behaviors associated with heart disease like tobacco and healthy diet, obesity, physical activity, and harmful alcohol use that we can impact these numbers and dramatically improve them. What are some comorbid conditions that can either contribute to or be caused by heart disease? And while you're speaking about that, speak about those risk factors because diabetes and these things, they all go together. The greatest risk factor is genetics, obviously, um, which we can't change, but the risk factors that we can change are high blood pressure, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and a known established cardiovascular disease as well, obesity, and an unhealthy lifestyle, and lack of activity. Those are all such important risk factors, and, and while they all tie in with heart disease, you mentioned that there's a genetic component. Is that something we would know? Is that something that doctors, providers should be asking, is this part of a well exam? It is important to be asked that question, but it's also important to make sure the question, the answer is offered if it isn't asked. Um, it is Genetics are the one thing you can't change when it comes to heart disease, but you can certainly affect the genetics by making the right choices. Tell us some of the latest ways to diagnose the presence or cause of heart disease. If we're getting our wellness exams, you're working with your primary care provider, you're getting your blood work done, what else is available to to detect it? And are there some symptoms? And while you're speaking of symptoms, Dr. Wiarda, speak about how women and men exhibit and present these symptoms in a different way. So in terms of detecting heart disease, certainly blood work is going to have you give you a better understanding of what your cholesterol level is. It'll also your blood sugar and your uh, hemoglobin A1C, which is looking at your blood sugar over a long term of three months, um, as well as your kidney disease, whether or not there's kidney disease present. So lab work will be able to tell you all that. And EKG can tell you if there's abnormalities with the conducting system that would suggest that you have problems with your corner arteries potentially. Echocardiograms look at the structure of the heart, and they can tell you if you're functioning well or whether or not you have valvular problems with your heart. And there's other imaging like coronary CTA calcium scores that can provide information about the burden of calcium in your heart and then can look at that allows you to to talk about your risk. Another test that can be helpful is the level of inflammation in your heart or high-sensitive CRP, 
C-reactive protein, and that can give you an idea of whether or not, even with your cholesterol level, if the inflammation is high in your body and give you and allow you to better treat those the calculate the uh, cholesterol to reduce your risk. While you're talking about inflammation, what about stress? Because we hear about cortisol and stress and inflammation, and that these are now big contributors to heart disease. Does stress contribute to heart disease? And is that something that we're learning as we see more women having heart disease, as more women are having these high levels of stress in the workplace that men used to have 30, 40 years ago? Stress certainly plays a role in heart disease, and that's actually on multiple levels. So one, certainly with the release of cortisone and fight-or-flight hormones, Um, As well as stress increases your blood pressure, stress can increase your blood sugar, stress can reduce the amount of sleep that you get, and so all of that stress increases your risk of heart disease. Additionally, you can, um, additionally, women certainly, how you deal with stress is also important, but also reducing stress with exercise, reducing stress with with therapy could even potentially help, but it absolutely increases your risk of heart disease. And women, back to the additional question, women do present differently in with men with um, symptoms of heart disease. And often the last symptom that women feel is chest pain. The more common symptoms for women are fatigue, just feeling tired, just feeling short of breath. Um, they may have back pain. They may have jaw pain or abdominal pain, but typically the last symptom they have is chest pain. Your classic angina, which anyone can have, is chest, substernal chest pain that radiates to the jaw, typically the left side, and down the left arm. However, you can just feel tired. You can feel nauseous. You can have abdominal pain. Women, and particularly diabetic women, can present uh, strictly with fatigue, and that's it. I want to stick with this point for a minute, doctor, because while women have these these kinds of different symptoms, so many of those symptoms that you've described can mimic stress and anxiety or, you know, an orthopedic issue, so many other heartburn, reflux. How do we know? One, we know by taking a good history. Two, by doing the appropriate exams like an EKG. Three, just by also looking at the risk factors. And so if someone has a family history or they are diabetic or have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and tobacco, which is a significant risk, then you will then you'll want to make sure that you probe and you know, always sort of protect the heart first and then worry about other things, then, then worry about the other symptoms later. Um, but you really want to take a good history and you want to listen to your patients and make sure that you're not uh, belittling their symptoms. What an important point. As we look to medicational intervention for any of these comorbid conditions, high blood pressure, cholesterol, any of these things, what are some of the things you would look to first? And while you are telling us a little bit about the medications that you might use, is aspirin something that is being recommended for many people, most people? Tell us who it's recommended for. 
Well, daily aspirin can certainly prevent a clot-related stroke. It may increase your risk of bleeding, either hemorrhagic stroke, GI bleeding, any form of bleeding. And so a daily aspirin is actually something that you need to speak with your physician about prior to initiating. Because it has its benefit by interfering with the clotting action of the blood, it actually can reduce your risk of, of having a stroke or a heart attack. But it can also cause the bleeding. And so you want to talk to your doctor and determine whether or not your risks specifically are such that it's worth it is uh, risk over benefit. Risk is less than benefit. So the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force recommends a daily aspirin. Ages 50 to 59 who are not at increased risk of bleeding have an increased risk of heart attack or stroke of 10% or greater over the next 10 years. If they're age 60 to 69, they don't have an increased risk of bleeding and they're high risk of heart attack or stroke 10% or greater over 10 years, then they should talk to their physician. More research really is needed regarding the benefits of taking a daily aspirin in the ages uh, younger than 70, between 50 and older than 70, it is something that you need to speak with your uh, physician specifically about. Certainly benefits, but really it's just an ongoing discussion. Um, the other question that's always asked is whether or not uh, an enteric-coated aspirin is beneficial and what dose of aspirin. Typically, 81 milligrams is the correct dose. Specifically, if you look at the guidelines for aspirin for atrial fibrillation, they say 325 milligrams. Generally speaking, 81 milligrams is a dose that's appropriate, even with coronary stenting. If, um, when it comes to an enteric-coated aspirin, there's been some evidence that suggests that it can actually increase the risk of ulcers and that if you and they don't always they aren't as effective because of the enteric coating in being absorbed. So enteric coated aspirin isn't necessarily as beneficial as it we once thought. The only mm-hmm. other thing that you have to think about when you're taking aspirin is just the risk of additional bleeding with things like um plavix or some of the new NOAC medications for atrial fibrillation uh, stroke prevention or blood clot prevention as that increases the risk of bleeding further. Um, Additionally, NSAIDs and other medicines that can increase the risk um, need to be evaluated and and at least discussed. Where does exercise fit into this whole heart health tip? And while you're discussing that dietary modifications when you're working with a patient and what you would like providers to know about using their prescription pad to prescribe exercise and dietary modifications that can help prevent heart disease. I think one of the most important things that people need to understand is if you don't use it, then you're going to lose it. And exercise is incredibly important, and that is for all ages. For substantial health benefits, you want at least 150 minutes or two and a half hours to 300 minutes or five hours a week of moderate intensity exercise or 75 minutes, which is at about an hour and 15 minutes to 150 minutes or two hours and 30 minutes a week of vigorous intensity aerobic physical activity or an equivalent combination of the two. So moderate activity versus vigorous activity, you want to at least be able at least have some difficulty having a conversation that would be considered moderate physical activity. Um, and you want to also vary up your activity. You want to do some, some muscle activity, some balance activity, some weights, 
so that you're doing not just cardiovascular, but you're actually benefiting multiple parts of your heart, um, multiple parts of your body as well. Balance is important. Um, And so any physical activity, we need to get off the couch. Studies have actually shown that people are are, are self-describing less inactivity. The problem is with cell phones and with um, gaming, there's a lot of, there's more than one hour of, in a, of of time spent doing that. So it's just really important to get out there, get exercising and it, to make it better, to make it more fun, to make it more enjoyable, do it with friends, do, you know, do activities as a family, do activities in groups so that it makes it fun, vary up your activities. All of that helps. In terms of diet, uh, the, probably the three best cardiac prevention diets, um, certainly by World News and Report, are the Mediterranean diet, the DASH diet, and the Cornish diet. Uh, Those are the healthiest in general. You want to reduce high-fat diets. You want low-fat, so healthy-fat diets. You want low-carbohydrate, healthy-carbohydrate, meaning fresh fruits and vegetables. You want healthy proteins. You want to reduce uh, you want to reduce your whites and and eat uh, brown rice, brown breads, healthier breads, high fiber. And those are the diets that are really important. It's great information. Dr. Wiarda, wrap it up for us. Your best advice for heart health and what you would like other providers to know about taking that good history and helping their patients to get on to a heart healthier lifestyle. I think the most important thing is just making sure that you really listen to your patients. When they walk in the door, I think it's important to understand their their life stressors, their family stressors, how much they eat, what they eat. Don't just ask, do you eat a good diet? Say, what does a good diet sound like to you? You know, be detailed about your questions and make sure that you understand the risk. Make sure you understand their family history. Make sure your patients understand the benefits of quitting smoking and, and help them to quit smoking and that they understand the benefits fits of reducing stress and that we have social work available to help with stressors and and other providers Uh, and make sure we use our other providers, make sure we use our dietitians, make sure we use our diabetes educators and our cardiac rehab. The resources are available. People just need to understand they're out there and that we can help them access those support systems. Great information. Thank you so much, Dr. Wiarda, for coming on with us today and sharing your expertise, giving us your best advice about heart health. It's so important for everyone to hear. You're listening to Expert Insights with the Carl Foundation Hospital. For a listing of Carl providers and to view Carl-sponsored educational activities, please visit carlconnect.com. That's carlconnect.com. We hope the information gained will be applicable to your work and life. This is Melanie Cole. Thanks so much for tuning in.